and welcome to Be More Super, the podcast. I'm Brian, your host, and this is episode number eight. And we're brought to you by the wonderful people at Prop Store of London. So if you're after a screen use prop or piece of costume, why don't you hop over to propstore.com and check out the website. They've got some absolutely wonderful auctions coming up. So this week's episode is with Stephen Lane, the CEO of Prop Store. So why don't you sit back and relax? And if you enjoyed the show, why not share with your friends, like on Facebook and subscribe. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Welcome to Be More Super, the podcast. Up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. An action-packed podcast where we'll discuss all things entertainment. They're the answer to are we alone in the universe. Conventions, prop collecting, cosplay, interviews, reviews, and so much more. The show starts with host Brian Gardner right now. So I'm here with Stephen Lane. Stephen, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Pleasure. Um, Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Many people uh, refer to you as uh, the archaeologist of movie props. Um, To me, you're like Willy Wonka, to be honest. I've won the golden (laughs) ticket, and this place is absolutely amazing. Um, You've got props from everything that I can imagine from, I mean, in the room that we're sat in now, um, so I'll talk you through some of the bits we got here. In, yeah, in the by office. all means. Yeah, so basically, right now we're sitting in uh, what is the prop store sort of conference room, if you like, our main meeting room, and it also doubles as my office as well. Yeah. Um, so what I like to have in here is some of the things that maybe are a little bit more personal to me, yeah. that maybe mean a little bit more to me. Um, obviously, prop store warehouse here has only 15,000 square feet of goodies. And then in Los Angeles, we have another 20,000 square foot facility as well. Wow. But some of, the, some of the items here are some of the pieces that I try to keep hold of. Um, as um, a lot of people who have heard me talk previously will know, I'm a collector born and bred. Uh, and that was really the sort of the starter prop store for me. So there are things that I like to keep and I don't want to sell unless um, there really are bills to pay and, and things to cover. So some of the key items in the office here, you've got a Christopher Reeve costume from Superman. It's from the first film. It's all fully labelled with Berman's and Nathan's labels uh, with Christopher Reeve's name inside. Um, This initially started actually its journey uh, to me coming from uh, one of the stunt guys who uh, worked with Chris on Superman 2 and Superman 3. And they used to have a process of reusing the costumes that Chris wore would then become the hand-me-downs for the stunt guys as they perhaps got a little bit more worn out. And when he first came to me with this suit, uh, it actually had been worn by him for fun runs for raising money for charity as well. What? And uh, a number of the components were quite heavily worn and, and distressed. Um, just from their wear and tear. Um, And then I did a deal in 2004 with the Warner Brothers Archive in Los Angeles where they have a lot of these costumes hanging on rails there in storage. And what I did was I replaced all of the worn-out components with... um, material that come directly out of the archive off the rail yeah uh, very specifically be- picking out the best condition uh, components that i could find and so it's a little bit of a hybrid in its origins yeah um but essentially it is all labeled to chris reeve um 
and the the chest emblem on them um they were all hand stitched into place um can actually be screen matched as well so we know specifically uh-huh. which scenes in the film it comes from as well what's really nice about this is, is that it's mounted on a on a custom display form and the head is uh, a life cast it's a full head cast actually of chris reeve that was taken by stuart freeborn stuart freeborn was the creature and makeup effects who is renowned for his work on 2001 space odyssey the the apes that he created which were just groundbreaking at their time uh, and then obviously Chewbacca and Yoda and, yeah. and all the cantina creatures from Star Wars as well but he did a lot of the flying rig work for Superman he did some of the miniatures uh, working with Derek Meddings and the team yeah. um, but he also did the full size dummies as well so they had to do casts of, of Chris Reed and when I acquired Stuart's collection in the early 2000s sitting there was the original mould taken of Chris Reed's head during the production of Superman. And so it's rare that I'll actually put a a head, a life cast or even a form on a costume because often it detracts from what we're trying to focus on, which is the costume itself or the prop itself. But in this instance, because I had access to a life cast that was taken during production of Superman by Stuart, uh, of Chris, I thought, okay, well, let's, let's go with that. And I think it works really, really well. Beautiful costume. Uh, going back 10 years ago, actually, they were reasonably easy to find um, and um, not incredibly expensive, but they've really become tough now. It's rare that you'll find one that will come from a source that worked on production yeah. or just that's out in the wild unknown. Most of the suits that are no, that are out there now are known and with private collectors or, or in collections. So You've um, mentioned before as well that uh, the Superman suit is heavily... Faked. Like there's quite a few. I heard an interview with you once that said that there's quite a few out there that, that you need to watch out for. Yes. Because they can be replicas. Yeah, um, yeah. Unfortunately, um, you know, this this isn't just specific to Superman suits. There was mm. a period sort of in the eighties, late eighties and early to mid 90s where there was a sort of momentum building for people's interest in this sort of thing yeah um but very very restricted access you know there was sort of auctions that took place once a year at bonhams or southers or crispies or something like that and and very little else and very little reference as well you know we're talking pre-internet pre-blu-ray pre-dvd you know you could get a vhs if you were lucky and it was expensive at that point and if you pause the VHS all you get is a fuzzy screen yeah. so your reference for the sort of guys who sort of were trying to replicate these things was quite poor um, and um, we had an era of sort of really shady activities and materials going into those auction houses and a lot of pieces that we've seen that were sold during that time we will push back on now because there is just that much more reference and, and we're that much more aware of the processes and practices and materials that were used and that's specific to the Superman costumes as well yeah. so um, when I first acquired the suit components that I got from Mark the Stuntman I went to see Noel Howard, who uh, run the shop at Berman's and Nathan's. And I said to him, look, you know, I really like the idea of owning this Superman suit, but can you tell me if it's real or not? He said, yeah, absolutely. No problems at all. Very specific things you can look at. And one of them is the weave of the suit itself. It's the yeah. cloth that it's made from. 
Um, and this was done on a, a machine that was uh, out in Germany uh, that Noel had managed to track down. They were having great problems finding an elasticated suit that wouldn't really show up sweat quite a lot um, and trying to work out what materials that they could use to keep Chris uh, comfortable and the stunt guys comfortable and have it look really good. Now you've got to, when you look at this suit, I'm going to talk for hours just about this suit, aren't we? <laughs> when you look at this suit, uh, you know, you've got to respect the fact that this is the sort of transition. This is the last spandex sort of superhero suit yeah. that we see. After this, the next super, big superhero film is Batman, and you're going to sort of foam latex components yeah. and much more of an armored look. So they were really trying to be true to that early Superman, um, the early superhero, you know, black and whites and, and uh, uh, shows on Saturday morning. Um, so it was difficult. So he said, look, the weave has got to be this weave. If it's anything other than this weave, it's, it's not right. Um, and just by telling us that, immediately discounted over 50% of the Superman costumes that are out there in private collections and being traded because yeah. it was a much, much later fabric. It was, you know, spandex didn't exist at this time. Lycra didn't exist at this time on a commercial basis. And and everything else that was out there was just made of a much later fabric. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a buyer beware. And I had somebody approach me November, December of last year and... He'd bought it from a collector who'd bought it from somebody else who'd bought it back in the 90s, 2000s and just, you know, wanted to believe that it was a real thing. And I had to sort of break the news very gently to him that uh, sadly it wasn't. And then it becomes very messy then because it's gone through a number of hands, you know. It's, yeah, it's very emotional it's, collecting mm. um, and it's got to be gutting to, to have a, a cos costume and then realize that it's fake and yeah no it is it's it's a it's a it's a really nasty jarring experience and yeah. we try to be very very careful with the way that we approach that and be very very sure of our facts and yeah. and that's why i i you know i think prop stores become renowned for the way that we authenticate material as it comes into the marketplace you know generally speaking i don't we don't as a policy authenticate for third parties you know if you're selling through prop store through one of our auctions if you want to consign to prop store to sell at fixed price then then we're authenticating it before it goes on to the next buyer yeah and that's that's how it gets that sort of rubber stamp of approval because we've put a lot of time and a lot of knowledge and expertise into undertaking that process but yeah it is it is tough and there are other things out there in private hands and and you know the, the phrase that we sort of banter around it is wanting to believe you know often if you see something on the market and it looks too good to be true, the likelihood is it probably is, and yeah. you really want to do your homework on it. You know, really ask the people in the know and who've got experience. Don't be scared about losing the opportunity of acquisition. Yeah. You know, if you miss out on that one piece, maybe it's for a reason or something else will come along. But don't yeah. jump in feet first um, without doing your research. Um, so you've you've got other pieces around here. Yeah, that should we talk about some of the other amazing. pieces as well? Uh, actually, one of the pieces on my desk over there behind you, which uh, if you flip around, you can see is is a miniature of the Chris Reeve uh, costume. Flying. Yeah. yeah. So this is a, one of the flying miniature suits, which is actually made of exactly the same material. So that was woven on the same machine that yeah. uh, that made the, the hero suits. Uh, let's go around the room a little bit faster. We've got John Hurt's spacesuit from Alien. I acquired that nearly 20 years ago now. Uh, wow. And we can screen that, match that to a number of sequences in the movie. Uh, to my right here, we have uh, Jack Nicholson's uh, very flamboyant Joker costume from Batman, the 1989 Michael Keaton, Tim Burton film. Um, beautiful piece of design by, uh, by Bob Ringwood. Uh, again, 
you know, this is still an era where they were really reflecting upon the costumes and the style of the of the shows that had come before them. So you can see a lot of reflections there on on the '60s Batman show. Uh, so really, really, really evident. Um, behind me is the Kurgan's costume from Highlander. Uh, what's really interesting these days is uh, showing my age a little bit. Is that I get a lot of people who come into the office now who don't know. Highlander and don't know who the Kurgan is. You know, everybody has their own taste, and uh, uh, I just think that uh, you know we're talking about an eighties. Uh, what was the date for that? Yeah, was it eighty eight Highlander? I think in around that sort of time. It's definitely, the eight, yeah, it was the eighties, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, you've got to be sort of maybe in your forties to to appreciate it. But um, it's a it's an amazing suit. Again, this is a uh, uh, a, a suit that took me. 12 or 14 years put together wow uh, the components the majority of the components of that suit went back to Berman's and Nathan's the rental house after production uh, they continued to rent uh, elements of it out over a number of years so pieces would turn up on different shows and then sort of get sold off at different times um, and so I had the chest armour and the shoulder arm came from one place then um, about eight to ten years ago, a partial costume came up for sale in an auction in Los Angeles that had the original helmet on it. It had two of the leg guards on it, the greaves on it. He only wears one, so I had one there, which I'd already had sculpted, so I replaced that. Yeah. And it was a real journey to get that. And then the, the, the sword, the hero sword, came from somewhere else. So, but I love it. It's a, it's wow. a really distinctive costume and uh, stands out for me. How, how did you get into this business? How I mean, I know that I've, I've heard that you went to go and see Star Wars and then that was the thing that really sparked uh, you into uh, thinking about collecting. But, but how did you get from a small boy to now the CEO of a multi-global company, you know, offices in LA and here? Uh, you know, short, it is a long story, you're right. Uh, a short story is really just passion and enthusiasm and love for what it is that I had interest in. Yeah. And I think that anybody who has the opportunity to work in any environment where they're passionate about something, then the likelihood is you're going to succeed. You know, I, I, when I set out with Prop Store without regaling the same old tale, um, I had no aspirations or expectations of it becoming what it is today. Um, when I first started out, it was uh, coming off the back of owning another company with a, a friend of mine. We fell out. Uh, we split. Uh, it wasn't amicable, so it was quite a painful split. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to work with people like that again. I don't want to have employees. Uh, I'm just going to have big in-depth conversations with my wife. And we're like, okay, we've done the sort of... And in fact, that was only nine employees, and it seemed like a huge amount at the time. Yeah. Um, and just said, we're not going to go that route. And we're just going to work out of home, keep the overheads low. And I used to keep stuff in my garage. I had a back room, which was sort of like a converted conservatory, which I used to do all the photography in. Wow. Uh, and then I would upload four items every second Tuesday on the internet, on the interweb, you know, when it first launched. Yeah. Uh, and they would all sell by the end of Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday night, everything was gone. Then I'd go down the post office, I'd pack all the boxes, ship them out, photograph the next lot, etc. And And that was the the really the genesis of prop store um from a sort of uh a corporate perspective i suppose from a business perspective and it was it was just i loved it you know i really loved what i was doing and i'd go and see people who worked in the industry and say 
I want to buy this stuff because I think it's amazing and it should be preserved and I'm going to sell some of it. I'm going to keep some of it and, but just don't throw it away. You know, I'd go and see special effects houses and the only reason they'd kept sort of mechanical heads or, or, or practical elements that they'd worked with was because the servos were valuable inside them. So they'd yeah. sit on a shelf and then when another job came along, they needed the servo, they'd rip the thing to pieces, throw the casing, the outer shell, the artifact, if you like, yeah. away and then reuse the servo on the next job. Same for costume houses, you know, they'd re-dye, re-spin, they'd re, you know, modify, they'd convert. Uh, Baptiste, the armourers, you know, they'd have stuff from Aliens, Flash Gordons, Star Wars. They'd repaint, refinish, redress, whatever, just to rent it on the next productions. And, I, and, and these guys thought I was nuts. You know, they literally thought I was bonkers. They had no understanding or comprehension of why it was that I was handing money over to them yeah. to, to, to acquire these artefacts. I called them artefacts. For them, they were just, you know, things yeah. for disposal, really. Um, and, and it was... It was that process that fascinated me, the hunt. You know, you talked about the sort of archaeologist sort of yeah. uh, element to uh, us, you know, the Indiana Jones of props, you know, yeah. trying to go out there and discover, find the stories, speak to people like Noel Howard about the Superman. It's not just about finding the thing. It's about once you found the thing, what's the story behind it? Yeah. Why is it like the way that it is? Um, my first significant um, prop acquisition was a Rebel Blaster from Star Wars and that led me to to go and see Bapti because I, I sort of found out those were the guys that made from the, for the film and I was like okay so tell me about it you know what, what what is this and why is it like this and can you restore it and yeah. and who are you people and what is it you do so how do you actually find props now because obviously back then it must must have been different times uh, is it easier now to find props than 10, 20 years ago? No, it's a very, very different world. It's, yeah. it, the landscape has changed immensely. That was a period that was so rich yeah. in findings. Yeah, it was unlike anything that I should think I'll ever experience ever again, or anybody will in the UK. You know, I was very lucky. I was ahead of the curve. I was ahead of really most people who were considering this as um, interesting, culturally significant. Um, there were a few other dealers who sort of did it as a part-time to doing trading in toys or yeah. you know running events or whatever it might be. But I, I came into this specifically focused on just doing this. You know, I was like, this is wicked. This is awesome. This is exciting. This is better than any day job I'm going to get with anybody working for anybody else. Well, excuse me, what can I find? Um, and so I went knocking on every door I could try and open. Again, this is pre-internet. So, you know, and in a lot of instances, it was right around sort of the advent of the internet, I suppose. I was collecting pre-internet and then prop store sort of became a business opportunity when the internet came along. Um, but, you know, I'd find cool sheets or crew lists and phone from there. There was no IMDB to go on to. Yeah. It was introductions to people. And I just went to everybody, every rental house, every prop house every costume house every special effects company anybody who let me in the door uh, finding old crew members getting introduced to people who've retired going yeah. to see them going up in their attics going in the garages going in the gardens finding stuff that would become planters <laughs> you know it was just really any of that and i spent over 10 years doing that yeah. you know solely doing that just all the time i was constantly out and i could buy van loads of things and you know i'd I, I'm still finding some of those things today in our warehouses that I boxed up back in the day, <laughs> but I've forgotten we'd even bought it. it was pre our barcoding system. Today, it's different. You know, what, what Prop Store has done has brought awareness to um, prop and costume um, assets uh, having their own value 
They're not yeah. just a byproduct of the production process anymore. They are regarded as having their own intrinsic value as an artifact that people have interest in. So yeah. you look at how many articles there are today in newspapers and magazines, on TV, online, how many cinemas you go to that have prop displays. I went to see 1917 in London just before Christmas. They had yeah. some of the co- props and costumes on Did display. you used to do the prop display for Planet Hollywood We did in s- London? We had when some, it was in the old location. Yeah, we had a couple of we did a couple of window displays there. I think yeah. we did. Ooh, this is going back. Johnny yeah. Johnny English. I think we did a window display for to tie in. We were working with working title at the time, and it was to tie in with the release of Johnny English. And um, gosh, we did two or three other films, and I'm just trying to wrap my brains. I'll come back to that. Yeah, because that was the first first time that Prop Store of London came to, 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 to me, because I used to work in L- London years ago, and I remember walking past the Planet Hollywood, and it was the curved glass. The corner window. Glass, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah that's and right. you, you always had, 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 the, had the display, <laughs> and I used to always miss my train, because I was just looking at it going, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, going on to authenticating, obviously you've explained with the Superman uh, cos- costume about obviously the weave. So when someone is looking at a prop to buy on the website, um, how are you authenticating the actual prop? Is it through watching Blu-rays? Is it uh, you know through the history of where it's been bought from? Yeah, it's, it's a multi-point process. Yeah. Uh, there's never going to be just one facet of investigation that's going to say it will determine, or very rarely anyway, that's going to determine that it is an original artifact. It's it's about the provenance, you're right. Where yeah. has it come from before us? Who's owned it? What's the chain of ownership? How far back can we go with it? Uh, what sort of documentation comes with it, if anything? Because you know, crew members used to bear in mind buy these items at the wrap sales for a pound or fifty p. Wow! You know, the Jack Nicholson Shining axe that I owned a few years ago, the guy I bought it for, from, he paid five pounds for it at the end of production and bought it as a wood chopping axe. So he had no paperwork still with it. He didn't bother getting a receipt for five quid, but it was a custom built axe that was specifically made, and we could match all of the details up. And is that the one that sold for one hundred and forty? Yes. Thousand. Yes. Wow. Five yeah. pounds, 140,000. Yes. Yeah. I paid wow. him more than five pounds, obviously, but I <laughs> bought it. Uh, I mean, I must have bought that axe 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago. So I'd had it for a number of years in, in so my personal collection. So there's definite investment opportunities in collecting because I've often said to the wife uh, about collect, collecting props, I've got a crystal from Superman. I've got cool. um, a few, nice. few other pieces uh, that I've, I've bought and sold from Hellboy. Um, and obviously now I, I own the Kiefer Sutherland screen-used shirt and jeans from season five that I bought from here. Cool. Uh, which which uh, is my pride and joy. It's, a, it's actually nice. in a storage unit because I haven't got space to display it, so I'm keeping <laughs> it safe. Get it out on display, man. Get it I'm out keep, on display to, 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 to be honest, I'm keeping it from Liam, who's sat over on the other side of the table because apparently is Kiefer Sutherland's perfect size and his wife's a bit obsessed with Kiefer, so okay. he's trying That's to borrow story. it, but you can't. You can't. <laughs> okay, you can't. Look, we, we've touched on a few different things here. Let's, yeah. uh, so you talked about you know values, investment. You're talking about authenticity. Yes. Let's just finish the authenticity bit first of all. So, yeah. so yes, we're going to we're going to look at all of that. We're going to look at the Blu-ray. Absolutely. We yeah. have also a huge archive of behind-the-scenes stills that we've been scanning and collating from crew members that we've been meeting over the years and drawing on that as well. And then we have. A a lot of eyeballs on it from people who are 
really knowledgeable you know obviously yeah. i've been in the hobby for close to 30 years tim's uh, my right hand man has been collecting for 30 years brandon ceo of los angeles has been in 20 years plus it's you know it's people who are really sort of understand the nature of the materials as well so it's a multi-point process once we get put it on our website once we put it in our auction that's the point where my company is saying we are proud to authenticate this and say that we are confident that it is genuine and represented as what we're, what we're saying that it is in the online website or in the auction catalog so i think that's critical and and a lot of people ask us to authenticate things just for them we won't do that because yeah. it, it is such a time-consuming process it does have to come through us to uh, to get that stamp and to get that certificate of authenticity um we were talking about uh, values there and investment you were also asking about the change in supply within the marketplace so yeah um let's just touch just roll back to a little bit of that so the the way that it has changed today is from having that opportunity to go out and find these caches of material that were as i say in garages lofts with with um rental houses or wherever it might be that's gone pretty much gone now you know the uh, the occasions where i will have somebody come to me and offer me something from films that were made in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. So I worked in the films. I've still got this stuff. It's rarer and rarer these days. I am more behind the desk, sadly, than I am out on the road going and looking at things like that. So what we've had to do is is build the relationships with the studios that we brought this level of awareness to. So you know, back in the early 2000s, I used to fly out to Los Angeles. I was like, why isn't anybody dealing directly with the film studios on this? Why isn't there a business about this already? And I did some amazing deals with 20th Century Fox and Universal Studios, Warner Brothers as well. And I used to buy containerfuls of stuff and ship it all the way back here. And then they would just let me dispose of it as I saw fit. And at that point, the majority of the time we were selling at fixed price price we were doing a little bit of auctioning on ebay a little bit on amazon.co.uk when they were doing auctions way back in the day um and uh that sort of evolved as the studios were then sort of watching what we were doing with their assets that that we were buying from them you know it was very transparent they could see everything was online so there was not like we're we're, you know we're going to take it away and do this but not tell them about it this was i'm knocking on your front door this stuff's worth money let's buy it from you and you can make some money rather than throwing it away or just it just disappearing over the years and we'll make some money at the same time um and they just became more and more controlling and wanting to be in the driving position for that and it was a difficult transition that period because you know it was something that i really wanted to main control of so that we maintained the supply the flow to marketplace didn't want to flood anything out because at that time the market was in its infancy Mm. um but that sort of transition through to where we are today, where pretty much every asset on a production, certainly on a major production, has an asset manager who is on set and on the production from the get-go. Most of them are barcoded. Some of them these days even have computer chips in them that are scannable to give all the data for how they were used, where they were used. And this is protection against theft from the studios because there is a lot of value in these artifacts now as yep. well. So they're protecting their investment in them. And we partner with them. So we're now still partnering with Warner Brothers, Legendary, Lionsgate, you know, some of these really big studios and independent productions as well. And that's the supply chain. So that's that's what's changed. And then on top of that, you have collectors we've been working with for 20 to 30 years who are having lifestyle changes. They're moving house. They want to reinvest in a 
fancy car or a boat, they're getting divorced, whatever it might be, and they're cashing in. And some of that material that we sold way, way back in the day is coming back to us. So that's becoming our sort of a, a new supply chain for us is the, our original client base. Yeah. And some of those guys who bought in early, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, the, 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 the numbers now have just changed so dramatically. There's such a recognition for this being uh, as an established art form um, and significant within popular culture. Mm. You know, what piece becomes the next ruby slippers to the next generation? And some of this yeah. is generational, you know. So some material, I'm, I'm sorry, I keep waffling on and, and there's so. a lot of information <laughs> here, but some, some, some material from, let's say, the 50s, 60s and early 70s, which was really sought after, Elvis Presley material, Marilyn Monroe material, um, uh, and, and maybe some of the lesser, but they were well-known during that time productions, some of those are struggling a little bit. You know, uh, key Elvis Presley material will always win through. You know, if it's a, a stage costume that you can pin down to a particular appearance or on film, great. That's always going to be sought over after because the new market for that is the institutions, the museums, you know, the big investment firms, the uh, even, uh, I suppose, you, the fashion industry and their archives. Um, but... You know, the guy who was standing next to Elvis Presley, who back in the day, you'd be able to sell that costume for, for a sum of money. People aren't really interested because those collectors are aging out right. of the market. They're, they're getting to the, not having the disposable income. They're getting to the retirement point. Um, and so you see a pivot of levels of interest there. And we often talk about, um, you know, when is the sort of optimum window for somebody to cash in from a from an investment perspective we're talking now. Um, and... And that is difficult to predict because there are going to be certain franchises, certain films, certain titles, certain actors who are going to transcend through the generations. And, you know, Batman, Superman, Star Wars, James Bond, they're always going to be collectors for those. Yeah. In, in, you know, in my short-sighted <laughs> vision of the next, say, 100 years, yeah. uh, you, the expectation is that there will always be levels of interest in that because they're just so groundbreaking for the, for the film industry. Um, but I think... The most significant takeaway, and, and you've already demonstrated it, this is that you buy what you love. Yep. You know, you 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 try less to consider about the investment aspect of it, and it's like buying uh, art or antiquities. Mm -hmm. Buy from the heart, and if you buy from the heart, then it's a win-win because you're going to love and appreciate and cherish that artifact while you have it on the wall, while you have it in your storage facility, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, while you, when you have it out on display, yeah. I mean, get it out on display. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, your friends are going to love it. It's going to be a great talking point yeah. and it's going to be something that you enjoy and you're going to enjoy the moment, enjoy your time with it. And then when you come to cash it in and, you know, you've got to dispose of it and you fall out of love with 24 or whatever it might be, or you yeah, find, uh, a, you find <laughs> a new film or franchise that you yeah. love more. Um, hopefully if you've, if you've bought in a way that uh, perhaps other collectors can step in and see your appreciation of that, that, that artifact and yeah. there's other people out there within the communities who are into it, yeah. hopefully you're going to make a bit of money at the same time. Um, and I think that, uh, again, if you're looking from the investment perspective, the best of the best will always perform better than everything else. So my recommendation is always to buy at the top of your budget. You know, buy one item that's you know at 500 pounds rather than five items at 100 pounds because th that one item is more likely to appreciate than the less significant pieces um but buy with your heart and then yeah. you, you're a winner do you think uh collecting props now nowadays is a rich man's game or do you think it's a, a you know assess accessible to everyone 
Um, I think the perception is that it's only a rich man's game, but if you go on Prop Store's website, you can buy something from £15 to probably £100,000 on our website right now. Uh, there is plenty of accessibility to uh, lower tier material on our website, on our competitors' website. Uh, there's an awful lot that trades on Facebook, social media platforms now as well, that's in the tens and hundreds of dollars and pounds. Um, obviously, hundreds of dollars or hundreds of pounds to some people is a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but I think if you are, I think if you can recognise the fact that you are looking at something as art, as a collectible for the significance, its historical significance in its application within, you know, the film or TV show that you love, um, then there's a degree of justification for that. Um, have we seen more money come into this in recent years? Absolutely. No question about that whatsoever. When I first started Prop Store and when I was first collecting, uh, one of the things I used to say all the time was that I had no understanding why something like a Darth Vader helmet or a Stormtrooper helmet shouldn't be fetching the same amount of levels of interest and therefore money as something like an Eric Clapton guitar. Yeah. Now, you know, Eric Clapton fans would probably go, boo hiss, what are you talking about? I'm not interested in Star Wars stuff. You know, it's, it's all very relative, isn't it, to, to um, each individual's passion. Um, but what we're seeing now is that items are cha changing hands for six figures, high six figures, and in some instances, seven figures. Yeah. And that's something that I... I forecast if you like if i i predicted that uh, and couldn't see any reasoning why it wouldn't happen 20 plus years ago um and i think what's happened is that more of the institutions more of these maybe very wealthy high net worth individuals uh who have disposable income also have got to the point where they're like you know what having a superman costume a chris reeve superman costume from the original films is really cool and you know what it's really hard stuff to find and if i put it in the corner of my penthouse suite or whatever it might be i'm gonna get a lot of people ask me about it and love it yeah. you know and so i think that there there is no doubt that uh the collecting communities are maybe competing a little bit more i think what we've seen uh within just the last 10 years really maybe even sort of five six years are sort of items that were a thousand to two thousand jumped to two to four or two to five items that were sort of five to 10 and now 10 plus yeah. items that were 10 and now 20 to 30. Um, and for some people who have been in since the sort of very early days, that's very hard to get your head around. Um, it's great if you got in early and, and you know, you're, you're sort of now at a point where you can cash a few of those chips in. And we also talk about that, you know, prop money. It's, it's, yeah, sometimes I'll do a deal and sell something which is substantially more than I bought it for, but I then just go immediately buy something that's more expensive that I would have paid yeah. so much for years ago. And so it's like I never actually have it in my hands for more yeah. than you know a day or two. So I think it, I think it's relative, but you can definitely find stuff to collect at any budget. Yeah. So once you've got all your props, all your collectibles, uh, I've asked, I've been asked by quite a few people to ask you this. Um, is there a way in the UK, because obviously we've got lis listeners uh, in, in the States as well, so this isn't going to relate to them uh, as, as much, but is there a place where you can go to get our things insured? You know, if you've got a collection that's worth th thousands of pounds and you've got them displayed in your house 
and not your storage unit. Uh, how do you get <laughs> or them? Or in your storage, or storage unit, unit yeah, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You want to be thinking about that even more. How do you get them insured? I mean, what's the process in that, if there is one? Yeah. Um, well, I've been working with the same insurance company for over 15 years. Uh, there are corporate insurers, um, so they insure the company for me and the company assets, the company inventory. Uh, the company collection that we have, over 30 spacesuits from film, film, different films and TV shows, um, amongst other things. And, and so I have a, a, a very good relationship with them. They're very familiar with what it is that we're dealing with. Um, again, if you'd asked me this question 10, 15 years ago, I would say there was practically nowhere to go for it because there was no understanding and recognition yeah. of the value and the significance of these things. I think today most insurance, if you go to them and ask what, policy they have that's relative to collectibles because collectibles not just film props and costumes comic comic art yeah uh, action figures you know even star wars action figures these days in their original packaging original ones sell for six figures mm. um i think they're becoming a much much more aware of it so i think it's it's really um the terminology you use when you approach them, it's not like, oh, you know, I've got a Superman costume. How do I insure it with you? It's like, I've got a high value collectible. How do I insure it with you? And, and right. I think most of them will have uh, an element of their policies. Okay. If anybody gets really stuck, then come to me and I'll happily recommend uh, my Excellent. broker, James Stewart. Um, he's always more than willing. He insures a lot of guys that I know who have been collecting for many years. So I can definitely you know, send, send people his way. Excellent. So at Prop Store, you do offer consignment uh, which I've actually got a piece myself that's consigned with you. What is the process in, in case there's anyone out there that's looking to sell through you? Um, okay, well, there's there's a, a couple of different ways to sell through us. Uh, as I've already talked about, we have the propstore.com um, fixed price, buy it now if you like, uh, platform, which has somewhere in the region of about six to 7,000 fixed price items on there right now. Uh, some of the content is from London, some of it's from Los Angeles. Consigners will work with us, gravitate towards us based upon their geographical location. So we're working predominantly with people within the UK and across Europe, some in Asia and, and further afield, Australia. Uh, and then Los Angeles is predominantly working with North America and, and that sort of side of the world. Um, the first port of call, you can go onto propstore.com and consign to us. Uh, there's a page that you can fill out there, which allows you to put the sort of bare minimum information about the artifact that you have for our sort of first stage appraisal, if you like. It allows you up to upload a, a photo or two as well, so we get an idea of what we're looking at. Um, and and then it's, it's really a conversation with you as the consigner as to what your aspirations are. Um, the auction model is something that we pivoted to uh, in a much more significant way in 2014 when we start, started the Entertainment Memorabilia Live Auction in London. And um, the reason for that was because we were competing with auction houses where we would say to you as a consigner, look, we think this is going to be worth £150. So we'll put it on a website, £149.95. Uh, your consigner fee is this, and this is what you're going to net. And you would say, okay, well, let's, let's give that a try. And then you might phone up one of our competitors who were predominantly auction-driven, and they would say to you, well, look, you know, I think you could possibly get two to 300 for this, or maybe even three to 500 mm -hmm. why, don't you, why don't you give that a try? Um, and you as a consigner would be like, okay, well, that's a better opportunity for me. You know, a fixed price on the website, 150 There's no upside to that. can't go any further. 
auction house saying three to 500. If it doesn't sell, it's cost me a few quid to catalog it with them or whatever it might be. And so now we're offering both of those uh, and we have been for a number of years and very successfully. And so part of that appraisal process is looking at the value. Is it significant enough um, to attract interest for auction to potentially drive the value up for you, get two people who are interested in it and bid it up. And generally speaking, we're looking at uh, artifacts in a, in a sort of a, a price range of sort of 300, maybe 400, 500 upwards to sort of fall into the auction category. Anything below that is is more likely to be fixed price. Yeah. Um, and then we just go through the same conversations we discussed earlier with regards to provenance, history, materials, we'll look at it, um, make suggestions. It then goes through to once we've got it a- approved with you, you'll get a consigner's agreement with us. Um, that then goes through to our photography team who will photograph it, goes to our copywriting team who will write the copy for it. Uh, again, the cataloging guys will do Blu-ray research, DVD grabs and things like that to support it. Um, and then it'll be scheduled into our diary for listing on the websites, uh, either to tie in with the launches from London or Los Angeles, which happen every day. We list about between five and ten items a day from each office. Wow. And do you offer trade-ins? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. do. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, the, the, as I said, the, the whole company philosophies have been born out of my passion to collect. Yeah. And you've got to trade as a collector, man. You can't just strike a line through that just becomes it, because it becomes a bigger business. Um, yeah, we, we trade, we part exchange, you know, for significant items. If you've got a, something really key and we really want it for one of our auctions, we can offer cash advances. So if you've got something that's worth 10,000, we might say, okay, well, look, here's two and a half grand just for you to commit it to us. Um, and so that we can, we can hold it back for our next auction. So there's all sorts of wheeling and dealing that's yeah, going to go on. That's you know? good news. Yeah. <laughs> if you see something you like on the website and you want to, you know, swap something out, then yeah. we're, we're happy to chat about that as well. You also go to a lot, a lot of conventions. I've seen you, um, go to the San Diego Comic Con what's that like compared to I think I've seen you at the London Film and Comic Con years ago yeah um, do you attend many conventions now or is that a thing that you used to years ago less now than previously yeah uh, a few reasons for that you know the heyday for me for uh, and for most sellers so we're talking about vendors who go to a convention to sell something yeah the heyday of that was pre-internet so basically what happened was we all used to hold our best stuff back and go to the you know nec birmingham or grundy grundy park uh, grundy was it was it grundy park grundy hall grundy park grundy park i think it was the the uh, sports hall that the jason joiner showmasters one of his first right, fairs okay. on a sunday <laughs> one sunday every three months or whatever but you'd hold your best stuff back you'd go there and then all the collectors who were really passionate into it you know they'd be like all around the table trying to find out what, what the stuff was that you had and of course the internet came along and you don't want to hold your best stuff back anymore for that and nor do any of the other traders and dealers and nor of the buyers they don't save their money to come to the show because they're expecting to see the best stuff there and there was this real period of wow this is just changing you know we were growing as a company and i was exhibiting at more and more shows in the uk and building these grand stands with shelves and lights and yeah. carpet down before anybody in the uk was doing that for anything like this and we were slowly pricing ourselves way out of the market as the spend patterns didn't grow with us at the same time and and in fact i, I would 
I would say that the majority of visitors to a convention today spend less per capita than they did back in the 90s when I was doing shows. You know, I would get somebody who'd come to a show and spend two or three thousand pounds with me. Yeah. You know, now today I think people cover their transport, their parking, they want to buy a burger or a sandwich, maybe have a beer. <laughs> then they'll go and pay maybe 50 quid for an autograph or yeah. two, maybe 100. They'll queue up in that line for that. Yeah. And that's it. Their budget is done. They've spent their 200 quid on getting there, being there, and having their autograph or maybe a meet and greet. Yeah. And the vendors who are generally sort of sitting around the peripherals, they're sort of looking at all these people who are almost window shopping. And that's where we got to. Um, we just got to the point where I was taking less and less money. It was becoming more and more expensive to attend. And it's not all about the money. I mean, it was all about the camaraderie. We had some great events where we'd have big dinners out with tables of 30 or 40 people at TGI Fridays yeah. in Birmingham. You know, we'd all get together. It would be a big thing. Um, but just the world changed. You know, th yeah. things moved on. And, and now we do... To uh, San Diego Comic Con, you're right. It is a, a, a big environment for us to be in. But even that has changed dramatically for us. We've been going there this year. I think it'll be our 14th or 15th year at San Diego. And when we started in our first booth, which was 10 foot by 10 foot, and we had six pallets of stuff turn up for it we were so overstocked it was just hilarious we didn't we were literally hand carried everything to our hotel over hours because we couldn't get it all onto the booth um <laughs> but we shipped it all from the uk as well back then wow. um but then we were trying to meet the sort of greg nicotero's and howard burgers we were trying to meet the effects industry guys we were trying yeah. to meet the prop masters then we were trying to meet you know, and impress the studio representatives, the producers, the directors, some of the talent that would go as well. And, 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 but today they are all in our circle already. You know, they are people that we are working with and dealing with. Obviously not everybody, you know, but yeah. uh, a, a lot of people who were on our target list in those early days are now suppliers to prop store. They're partners with prop store. Um, and, and so, at the same time, Comic-Con has changed. It, again, only going back that sort of 15 years ago, there was so much more emphasis on what was happening in the hall. Whereas if you go to San Diego now, if you're lucky enough to go, and it is crazy, you know, go there at least once in your life if you yeah. can. Um, there is so much more that takes place outside the hall. It's, yeah. it's actually the whole town, the city has taken over. You know, the uh, baseball field becomes a zombie walkthrough experience. You know, the Hard Rock Cafe has some meet and greet going on. This restaurant up there has a, a Leica convention going on where they're showing stop motion animation. There are pop-ups all over the place. You know, they did a Blade Runner one a few years ago, which was just phenomenal. All off-site. You don't even, don't even have to ticket to get in the hall. And in fact, that's the other big problem is it pre-sells uh, immediately within minutes or hours. Yeah. So a lot of people who want to get in can't get in. The people who have been there before get priority. So actually what happens is in the hall, you're seeing the same faces that you've seen many times over, which is great. They're all people who we want to converse with, but you're not seeing much of the sort of fresh blood that you want to see, the fresh collectors who are sort of the new entry-level people who you want to be having the conversations because they can't get in. And yeah. they're all outside milling around doing the other stuff. So I think that you know, social media has probably become more of a focus for investment for us. Engagement on that gives us a much broader opportunity on a global level um people don't need to have bought a ticket they don't need to have spent money to engage with us they can see our beautifully shot images they can converse with us they can engage with our blogs etc yeah. and i think that that's taken some of the place 
but it will never take it all. You know, I always want to be out there and, and meeting people. I love going to Star Wars Celebration, for example. You know, that's, that's a real geek out fest for me, you know, where I'll take my prop store hat off for as much of it as I possibly can and just get really nerdy with Star Wars collectors. Excellent. Well, I think um, that's about time with us, Stephen. So, um, I've, I've, well, I could speak, speak to you all day, especially about the uh, Chris, Christopher Reeve costume just there. Um, but lastly, uh, if you had to choose one prop that you've got, and that was the only prop that you could have in your collection, what would it be? I've been collecting for 30 years, man. You know, that's... One. It's got to be one. It's got to be one. Um... Really? Yeah. Um, like Darth Vader's lightsaber from Empire Strikes Back. So I, I have the original have Hero really? lightsaber from oh, Empire Strikes wow. Back, which amazingly I found on a wall of a casino in Aurora, Illinois. Uh, it had been traded through a few hands to go on their wall in a sort of Planet Hollywood-style yeah. environment. And uh, I acquired that, I don't know, it must be about 10 years ago now. And, yeah. and that screen matched to a number of scenes, the dinks in it, the rivets in it, the positioning and things, and uh, the, uh, off, uh, the, the carbonite freezing chamber and things. It's hanging there right in front and centre in all of those publicity stills in the uh, I'm Your Father sequence as well. Yeah. You know, it's so... Uh, you know, my origins of Star Wars, as we talked about right at the very beginning of this interview, at seven years old, going with my mum and dad to see it in Leicester Square at one of the premieres, uh, right the way through to the action figures that I was trading with as a kid and the, and the trading cards through to the Rebel Blaster that was the, my first significant Star Wars prop. And so I think, you know, that's going to be right up there at the top of the tree. Do you prefer the old ones compared to the new ones? Well, um, how long you got? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was very, very lucky and very, very fortunate because of the amount of artifacts that I have for the original trilogy. Yeah. I actually ended up working in as a consultant, specialist consultant on The Force Awakens for nearly two years. Wow. So I was on and off set all the time, meeting with people like uh, um, Michael Will... Um, sorry meeting with people like Michael Kaplan, yeah. uh, the costume design, and Dave Crossman, and the, the costume department, taking my helmets in and having them yeah. scanned. I took the, the Vader saber in, um, talking about the teching, the Greeblies, the materials these things were made of with the prop departments. And, you know, seeing some of the, the key and pivotal sequences from that movie being filmed, just standing there on set, uh, means that I re-engaged at a level I never expected to re-engage with Star Wars. So for me, original trilogy... Prequels that, you know, that has something for me, but I struggle with them. Uh, Force Awakens is, is then next on the list for me. You know, that's, that's something that I will take with me forever. And actually hanging on the wall behind you there is a photograph of myself and Brandon Allinger in 2013 or 2014. It must be actually sitting in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. So it's, uh, yeah. Wow. How so, lucky are you? Yeah. I'm very, I'm very, you know, really so lucky to have, to, as I say, to have found something that I just did as a hobby for fun made a business out of it, ended up being a consultant on the, I've got a credit on that film, you? roles at the end of it. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's mind-bending really and I'm, I'm very, very, very fortunate. That's awesome. Stephen, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for letting us come down and have a look at the enormous Willy Wonka factory, I call it, because it's <laughs> like every, it's like Disneyland for adults. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, and I've bought from Prop Store amazing service from start to end. Um, out of there, def definitely uh, the place to go uh, for authentic and genuine pieces and you can shop with confidence. Uh, so Stephen, thank you very much. That's been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming in. Thank you.
you've been listening to Be More Super the Podcast. It was kind of a crazy fun experience. I love the show, guys. You're awesome. Listen, my whole family loves it, man. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and share it with your super friends. In my world, it means hope.